This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. morning it's thursday february 29th 2024 welcome to now with dave brown coming to you on ami tv i'm dave brown let's hit the leap day horns and go hmm. the leap day horns sound like any other horns funny that Coming up on the show today, there's a new affordable housing initiative in London, Ontario. Brian Orr from PHSS describes it. Single child families are becoming more common in Canada. Don Dickinson explains why in her preview of Maclean's magazine. And Microsoft is making waves at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, Spain, specifically the world of artificial intelligence. Mark Flalo will have more of those details. The show kicks off with the top story of the day, and it's a disability-related story. This one coming south of the border. U.S. airlines could face more fines for mishandling wheelchairs under a Biden administration proposal. Andy Field has details. The government proposing a rule that would make it easier for the Transportation Department to fine airlines that damage a passenger's wheelchair. That happened more than 11,000 times last year, often leaving passengers stranded or unable to get reimbursed for a repair or replacement. The new rule would require airlines to have loaner wheelchairs available. The fine could cost airlines up to $120,000 per violation. You really need to drill down into that statistic 11,000 times last year. The CEO of Air Canada told the House of Commons Parliament Parliamentary Committee something similar-ish a few weeks ago. Oh, you know, only a couple thousand Canadians with disabilities felt mistreated by the airlines. But when you start talking about 11,000 cases of mishandling or damaging wheelchairs, that's not a mistake. That's a pattern. The U.S. Transportation Department is also calling for airlines to provide annual training for employees who handle wheelchairs or lift passengers with disabilities. Imagine that ongoing training on how to offer proper accessibility services. Coming back to Canada, the federal government is tabling first steps in creating a national pharmacare plan today. Laura Osmond looks ahead. Along with new legislation, the Liberals are also expected to cover birth control drugs and insulin for anyone with a health card. The bill is a key element of the Liberals' political pact with the New Democrats, but the two parties have been in a stalemate for months over the wording and the number of drugs they plan to launch with. The NDP announced they clinched the negotiations late last week. The bill is expected to lay out the principles that would underpin a potential federal pharmacare plan in the future. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. Health Minister Mark Holland is going to announce that in the next couple of hours and the topic of pharmacare will come to the news panel tomorrow morning with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta along with a smattering of other stories. Okay, one more story from the business world. Canada's Competition Bureau is having a hearing 
that deals with Cineplex theaters. The issue is online booking fees that Cineplex introduced in June of 2022. The competition commissioner says those fees are a form of junk fees. Canadian press reporter Anya Karadegala takes a closer look. The competition commissioner says uh, that Cineplex is engaging in uh, drip pricing or charging junk fees, as they're also known. So at issue is the fact that in order to buy a movie ticket online, a customer has to pay a $1.50 online booking fee. And the only alternative to paying that fee um, is really to just go buy the ticket in person. The company has made almost $40 million from online booking fees since June of 2022. It feels like there's been a brambling of a few stories this week in the e-commerce world. On Tuesday, there was a roundtable conversation about Wendy's bringing in surge pricing or dynamic pricing when the restaurant is busy to charge more for burgers. They've since walked that one back. There was certainly a lot of bad publicity on that front. And now you get stories of Cineplex being at least taken to task for the notion of online fees. And you start to ask yourself this question, and, and it was never quite addressed on Tuesday. And I wonder if there's going to be a space sometime next week to address it. Does it feel like the tide of online e-commerce is turning against you? customer. Maybe the premise is messed up. Maybe the online world and the e-commerce world was never necessarily for the customer. But does it feel like there's been a tide change? That is not the daily poll question, but certainly something for you to chew on for the rest of your day and maybe run that by your friends at the coffee table or at the uh, pub table, if you will. But let's get to the actual daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Wednesday, you were asked about your relationship with facial recognition technology after the University of Waterloo removed 29 vend or will be removing 29 vending machines that were caught using facial recognition tech. 16.7% of you said good, 28.3% of you said bad, and 55% of you said... I am blissfully unaware. Today's daily poll also coming from the world of technology. The Toronto Public Library is still putting the pieces back together after a false cyber attack. How much does an organization being breached by hackers influence whether you'll use their services in the future? A lot, a little, or not at all? at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Elizabeth Moeller. One of the only times my identity was ever truly breached by a hack was when I sent flowers to some friends through an online service for their wedding. And let me tell you, when I got that email about my identity potentially being stolen, I never used that online flower shop ever again. Um, yeah, I um, I also had um, an identity hack. Unfortunately, it was with a bank. It was very scary. Ooh, that's a bad one. Yeah, it, it was really bad. All my accounts were closed. It was midnight when I found out on a Saturday. Of course it was. And oh, I was trying oh. to call an Uber home. Um, yeah, I do take it into consideration. I I am sort of a, a pretty big user of, of Libby, which is an app through the Toronto Public Library that does audiobooks. Um, I think for me personally, I'm going to take a little bit of a, a step back and 
use some other online book services for a while until things sort of calm down. But I think my caution and my reason for sort of the yellow stoplight is because I have had a pretty bad hack in the past and just the, the sheer amount of work, and I'm sure you know this, to get things back in order was mind boggling and you just feel so violated and it was an awful experience. So I think I'm going to, I will go back, but not right away. Laura Bain, the nature of the service is certainly going to influence my answer on this one. If, if my bank got hacked, I would certainly feel many, many, many things in regard to that, but I would still be leery about moving all my stuff out of there because that ends up being a lot of work on top of a lot of work that already exists. But yeah, I mean, if, like for me to say no more using this flower, online flower shop was an easy one. But yeah, if it was something, uh, for example, like the Newfoundland and Labrador uh, health systems uh, was hit by a ransomware attack last year or the year before, sometimes you just don't have a choice. But I feel like if I've got a choice, it's going to impact my, my experience and my desire to use that service quite a bit. Right. And, you know, maybe fairly or unfairly, thinking about the bank example, I, I think we have three people here who've worked for banks. So knowing, unfortunately, how commonplace it is and uh, by moving to another financial institution, you're definitely um, not assuring in any way that you're not going to have that happen at the new institution mm -hmm. uh, because I think it is just quite commonplace. Now, uh, this one is a little bit scary. I heard about a data breach with the company 23andMe. Where, oh, yeah, yeah. You did a whole segment about your experience with 23andMe a few weeks ago. Well, I was with Ancestry. Oh, excuse me. Well, it was shortly after I had done my Ancestry kit that I heard this about the breach with 23andMe. And of course, there's not really any more personal data that you could have about someone than their kind of <laughs> genetic makeup yeah. and their DNA. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like for me, it's just a little because, uh, you know, I hear about these things. Maybe I stay away from the company for a bit, but my memory is not that long. And I also feel like it is just so commonplace that I have a little bit of complacency about it. I feel like my data is probably just out there and it's sort of more about mitigation at a certain point. And it can also depend how a company handles it when there's a, a breach mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as well. So some companies it happens and they sort of get out in front of it and they let you know and you change your password and um, it's generally not the fault of the company when they have a data breach, but um, you know, other companies like 23andMe didn't handle it very well, actually. They blamed users for having weak passwords. Oh dear. Um, yeah. But of course it's it's their, it's they they are the ones who set the password requirements and, and don't have two-factor two, uh, authentication, those sorts of things. So I believe they are actually being sued. <laughs> <laughs> hey, lawyers are always staying busy. Yeah, listen, right off the top of my head, Laura, you used the word commonplace there. Right off the top my head. I mentioned the Newfoundland and Labrador health records. I mentioned uh, the Toronto Public Library. I mentioned that online flower shop. Uh, there have been bank breaches. There was the massive MGM casinos breach last fall in Las Vegas that basically... Life labs. Life labs. Like, there have been just uh, the RCMP. The RCMP gave an update on their own cyber attack last week. At a certain point, it is commonplace and you just have to do what you can to protect yourself, whether that be VPNs, stronger passwords, but certainly uh, you don't like it when the companies start uh, blaming you uh, for their own security breaches. Thank you to both.
thank, thank you to both of you for your thoughts on that question. Now it's your turn out there in listener land in the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also send emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, one 509 and uh, apologies, I don't know how strong my microphone is this morning, but our neighbors upstairs appear to be moving furniture around. So if you hear some squeaks and squeals during the show today, rest assured that's not me. It's uh, the upstairs neighbors not respecting national television. Coming up after the break, single child families are becoming more common in Canada. Don Dickinson explains why in a preview of McLean's magazine. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Families are getting smaller. And no, I don't mean getting less tall. More people are stopping after having just one kid. It's a reflection of the time, and it's the basis of an article in this week's edition of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Here's a clip from the article read by Michael Weil. The most recent census data showed that single-child families are the most common type of Canadian family with kids, making up 45% of households, compared to 38% with two kids and 17% with three or more. On a domestic level, the rise of one and done is reconfiguring the layout of family dinner tables. On a population level, it's driving the trend toward lower birth rates. In 2022, Canada hit a record fertility low of 1.33 births per woman. That's a huge drop from 15 years ago. Don Dickinson is the content curator of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Hey, good morning, Don. Hello there, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well today. Really interesting article, and it's actually quite relatable to a lot of people around my age and their experiences. So what are some of the factors behind the idea of one and done? Well, Dave, I think a lot of us know that uh, adults are <laughs> today are having fewer children because they start later. Uh, a lot of them are starting much, much later. Working women especially put off parenting to meet the high demands of professional success and sometimes end up with one and done whether they like it or not. Obviously, you know, if you start your career in your 20s and you want to build that career, uh, sometimes it takes a while. So, you know, by the time you get around to thinking about kids, it might be that you only have a choice of one and done. Mm -hmm. That short clip shared a little bit of statistical context. What are some of the other data points that show the trend as the norm? Well, you know, <laughs> this really surprised me. Um, Canada is on the cusp of a group uh, that the that they're calling the lowest low countries. Um, 
basically that includes Italy, which is uh, replacing their population at 1.3, children, Spain at 1.3, Singapore at 1.05, and Hong Kong at 0.87. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of factors, uh, as I say, you know, the age factor, the demographic factor, the cost of housing, affordable housing, childcare, all the rest of it. But really, when it comes right down to it, you know, we're starting later. Um, the economy is is tough right now. Uh, you know, parents are finding it, and and of course, childcare. This is why it's such a big thing, a big push right now with, um, you know, the uh, the cost of childcare because, uh, you know, how h- how do you do it if if you don't have help and you don't have and you don't have the extended families that we used to have? You know. Yeah, that goes back to some of the multi generational living stuff that you and I have addressed a few times here in this segment as well. That just how, yeah, how, how do you make it work? It's, again, I, this is not strictly a Toronto show or strictly a Vancouver show or strictly a big city show, but when you're talking about one bedroom condos going for $650,000 or $700,000, how on earth is somebody supposed to start a family? Uh, you know, I get that maybe sometimes the standard of living is a little different than it was, say, 100 years ago, where you could have six people in 600 square feet but uh you know things have uh, changed a little bit so don the the shift here the shift that's becoming the trend that's becoming a norm what are the implications of smaller family sizes well there's a lot of implications but of course you know you don't need a crystal ball to see the impact of smaller families on the country, uh, like many countries in the in the world, Canada's safety net is based on the presumption of deposits far outnumbering withdrawals when it comes to social services, you know, CPP and all the rest of it, right? Um, so when it when you think about it, I mean, um, way back in the day. Uh, for the universal pension plan was instituted um, in 1952 during the big baby boom. Uh, in 1966, there were 7.7 working age individuals for every senior. Today, Dave, that's 3.4. The ratio will mm. reach 2.1 mm. in the next decade. Federal spending on elder care will soar from the current rate of 2.7% of GDP to 3.2. So really, it comes down to the fact that there's going to be many, well, much fewer and fewer and fewer people contributing and uh i don't know about you dave but i don't want that to be happening <laughs> uh, i mean i might be i might be too far away from ever getting a cpp paycheck at this point that i've got to uh, carve my own path don i got i got i got 20 i got 25 years to figure that out and hey the oceans and sharks and black widow spiders are coming for me in the meantime so who knows if i'll even make it uh, that far oh dear dave <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a dark it's a dark thursday don hey don i mean there was a 27 degree swing yesterday yesterday in seven hours in Toronto. It threw me for a loop. I'm a little loopy today. Yeah, no kidding. Yesterday was something else, <laughs> oh wasn't it? Oh my gosh. Hey, you're a, you're a puppy owner. You know all about that outside life. <gasps> oh yeah. <laughs> Don, let's go to uh, the world of public health because the next article is all about invasive strep A, not your average strep throat infection with quite a few side effects. Don, why is this form of strep becoming a growing concern? Well, I hadn't even uh, heard about this, Dave, but it turns out that 
Microbiologists are warning of a global spike in aggressive, sometimes life-threatening infections related to the bacteria that causes strep throat. In Canada, 327 cases of invasive uh, uh, strep A were reported between August 2022 and February um, the 11th, nearly 100 more than average. And these infections happen when the bacteria enters the skin muscle tissue or bloodstream and proliferates to cause dangerous conditions like toxic shock syndrome. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, a really aggressive uh, form of it. So I, I think you laid it out there a little bit, but scratch a little deeper on how it differs, how strep A infections differ from your typical strep throat. Well, um, Basically, this what this is called is a streptococcal infection. Okay, so it's caused by the same bacteria that causes strep throat. Um, uh, you know, and I mean strep throat. I mean, everybody who's had kids knows what strep throat is, right? I mean, I mean even even adults, affects, even adults get that well, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. But I mean, kids particularly because it, it affects them a lot. It causes fever and swollen tonsils and lymph nodes in the neck that get swollen, and it can be cured pretty easily with antibiotics. So, uh, but not so much with this other case. It's uh, it's a little more advanced, and as I say, it can get under the skin and into uh, muscle tissue and cause a great deal of damage. What are doctors and researchers saying about long-term effects? Well, <laughs> another terrible thing that it causes is necrotizing fasciitis, which basically kills your tissues, okay? Ooh, ooh. Um, there are cases where a surgeon had to come in and remove tissue or even a limb to stop these advanced infections. It can be very aggressive, and it also can attack organs, internal organs. Um, it can lead to uh, streptococcal toxic shock syndrome, a hyperinflation reaction that can be fatal, and even, believe it or not, meningitis in some cases. Oh, my goodness. All right, Don, that's enough fear-mongering. Let's uh, close the book <laughs> on this one. Don, thank you for this. Have a lovely weekend. Oh, okay, Dave, take care. That's, bye -bye. Don, that's Don Dickinson, the content curator of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio, which airs weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, unless, of course, you are listening to me right now on the mighty airwaves of amiplus.ca. Coming up after the break, there is a new affordable housing initiative in London, Ontario. Brian Orr from PHSS tells you about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. An affordable housing initiative in London, Ontario is having a major impact. The 14-unit building on Clark Road is supported by the PHSS. PHSS is a nonprofit organization that provides care and supports across Ontario's for individuals with complex medical needs. Brian Orr is the board chair of PHSS. Hey, Brian, thank you for taking the time today to chat with me on the show. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure, Dave. So the initiative takes a big focus on having a mixed residential community. What does this Clark Road community look like? Uh, it's a 14-unit facility, 
And the key to it was we wanted to create an, deliberately an intentional community. And by that we mean is a mix of individuals living together in the same, they have their own apartments, but intentionally mixing and spending time together and supporting each other in, in a supportive um, environment. What are some of the services that tenants may have access to within the building itself? Uh, so the building is 14 apartments on one floor. Um, it includes two common rooms. One's a large multi-purpose room that can probably accommodate 30. If you look at the picture, it's actually in the front left corner of the picture is where that's located. And then halfway down the building, there's a smaller uh, common room that is actually set up more like uh, a recreation room or a family or, or living room for people with a television, nice chairs to sit in, again, to encourage people to come out of their apartments and spend time together. And what you're seeing on there is a photograph of a single, uh, they're all single bedroom apartments. So what you're seeing is the area that's a kitchen living room area from front and back. Each apartment has an access door outside to a small patio. Oh, I so love that. And it's all wheelchair accessible. So it's on one floor, it's wheelchair accessible throughout the building. I am loving those wood floors, by the way. That, that apartment looks nicer than my apartment, Brian. That, that's a that's a sweet that's a sweet spot right there. Uh, yeah, I might I might have to move in. Uh, you guys you guys put the apartment out in a, you guys launched in 2018. What have, yes. what what have the successes been like? Now that you've got a couple of years of sample size, where where do you feel the the greatest impact has been felt? Uh, we've been operating now with clients in the apartments for five years. We, in fact, did that at Christmas time, celebrated our fifth year. I would say one of the big successes has been, and one of the challenges when we first started this was how do you create an intentional community? Because it's a model that's developed in Europe, but there's very little experience doing that here in North America. And so what we realized was we had to work really hard at selecting individuals who were interested in living in that kind of environment. And I would say one of the huge successes we've had is that that's been successful. We've had very little turnover. Uh, people who have left have left because for very good reasons, like they got a job in another city. And so that that, that resulted in some turnover, but it, we've had no problem filling it. The other big success has been that people really are mixing. We run programs, we run communal events like like group dinners and, and outings and things like that to mix. So when you go into the place, and this is actually at one of the events, that's our lar the large room, so you can see the size of it on it. Oh, yeah. And doing doing a mixture. So you can use, it's a multi-purpose room that you can use for virtually anything. That was our five-year celebration um, in, in the place. So what, what's been successful is the degree of mixing that has occurred. In fact, when you walk into an online most apartment buildings, most people's doors are open. They, in fact, want other residents to come in and out and interact with each other. In fact, I was there in December. We were trying to find somebody. We were having to go down through the various apartments trying to find out who they were visiting <laughs> at that particular point. Um, and the other point that was made was that people, that only four of the people out of the 14 apartments are, in fact, supported by PHSS. We didn't want to create an institutional feeling. We didn't want everybody in there to be on supportive care. So we deliberately have mixed them. And what's been a huge success is that the residents, regardless of why they're in the building, mix intimately. They spend a lot of time each other. In fact, 
people are not supported by us, and, and the picture shows one of them here, actually comment about what they have learned and how they value having that opportunity to intermingle and get to know people who we in society label as disabled. Mm, mm. And so that has been a huge unexpected gain in the sense of people mixing together and sharing and having good times together. Building community and the ripple effects that come with it. Brian, you mentioned that this is a model that has been somewhat popularized in Europe, but how do you think Clark Road might serve as a model for other communities in Ontario or maybe even across the country? I would say, the reason this works was that we actually sponsored as a non-for-profit organization because it's really hard to sort of spontaneously create these things. We we ended up doing a lot of work with the City of London. In fact, the, the program's all set up under as part of their supportive housing function. And there was need to get government grants to or actually fo- be able to c- construct and uh, the building itself. So that the efforts to do that, I think, are significant challenge in terms of creating this kind of environment to move forward. So the other thing that's made this successful is because we sponsor, we have staff in there every day taking care of the four people we support, but they in fact interact in, and do things for everybody. So the, the concept in there is regardless of why you're there or what your, your situation is, if you need help or assistance or any needs, we will support you doing that. So I think I think in some ways it's the sponsorship and the and the facilitating of the of the unit that really makes it successful. Brian, you talked about some of the collaboration here in getting things rolling and getting things moving. What advice would you offer to other non for not for profits or other organizations in other parts of the country if they wanted to undertake a similar initiative? I think it's a collaboration. As I said, our one with the City of London is is uh, huge in terms of the success and, and and moving this forward and sustaining it uh, as we go forward. And it's it's also um, the right developers. One, we're very lucky in that we have developers who we've worked with on other initiatives who understand what it means to build an, a barrier-free facility or, or a home. And, and that's critical for the people we want to support um, moving forward. And it's also finding the land. And nowadays with the increasing costs of land and mm. construction, that price point is becoming a critical issue to mm. deal with. Hey, Brian, thank you for taking some time today. Thank you to you and your colleagues on the board for all the hard work you're doing. Let's stay in touch and uh, keep talking about successes moving forward because there, there, uh, there are not too many uh, positive stories on the housing front right now. So I'll take the wins where I can find them. Absolutely, Dave. Happy to stay in touch. That's Brian Orr, the board chair of PHSS in London, Ontario. In 60 seconds, Elizabeth Moeller will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minutes. 
Canada's main stock index moved lower yesterday, led by weakness in base metals. Toronto's TSX index lost 75 points to close at 21,243. New York's Dow Jones average gave back 23 points and the Nasdaq dropped 87. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 41 points and our dollar is trading a little lower overseas this morning at 73.61 cents U.S. The Competition Tribunal in Ottawa is hearing a second day of arguments today in a case that could decide whether Cineplex can keep charging customers an extra $1.50 for buying movie tickets online. Lawyers for the competition commissioner argued yesterday the fee Cineplex charges for online purchases amounts to harmful drip pricing. They argued customers have no choice but to pay the fee and buying tickets in person at the movie theater isn't a reasonable alternative. The tribunal has been hearing debates over whether the fee was visible enough on the movie giant's website and if it's reasonable to expect moviegoers will scroll down to see the total price. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to the world of weather with Elizabeth Moeller. Elizabeth, I do eventually want to pick your brain about what yesterday was like in the GTA because it was a wacky one. But you've got some long-term stuff here out of British Columbia that's going to make for an awkward and uncomfortable couple of days. Unfortunately, I am the bearer of bad news with some wild, wet weather whiplash. I got, I think I got that right. Well done. (laughs) In in BC this time for our weather report, we're traveling west. Uh, A big storm is going to be hitting British Columbia with a lot of rain and snow until later on today. This is causing a lot of trouble for travelers, especially on those highways where it's very risky and slippy and slidey. Whistler and that sea to sky from Squamish to Whistler are getting hit really, really hard with snow. Unfortunately, they could get up to 50 centimeters by later today. Already, nearly 30 centimeters of the stuff has landed. But the lower mainland is getting soaked as well with rain. Some areas might get up to 75 millimeters by later on today. Vancouver Island actually saw some wet stuff, snow on Tuesday, because of cold air mixing with a warmer system from that Pacific Ocean. And during the nighttime, the wet snow turned into rain in lower areas. Rain is unfortunately going to continue in the lower mainland with 20 to 75 millimeters expected, depending on where you are located. Those mountain areas and coastal highways are still under winter storm warnings, so do take care if you're traveling today or the next couple of days. And if you're planning to go to Whistler, mm, I'd hold off on those plans. I would probably wait a couple of days. There are going to be some power outages expected, so do take care and have those batteries on hand. But you know, Dave, I was thinking BC is being hit hard, but we're getting uh, hit hard in, in some of the, you know, east, eastern Ontario, Quebec and uh, Toronto's dipped down as well. GTA's dipped down as well. Right. So that so that's what I wanted to pick your brain about. But hold on one second here, Elizabeth. It's kind it's funny. I, I put my ski toque on for a second here and I hear 50. Okay. I hear 50 centimeters of fresh pow pow on whistle on Whistler. Yeah. And I think to myself. Well, maybe if I have snow tires and four-wheel drive, I might be able to brave that one because 50 centimeters of pow-pow, that's a good time for the skiers. It's a good time. And, you know, Whistler was really, really struggling because for a long time there was no snow. Exactly. And the ski resorts were struggling. So this, although it's going to be tricky for drivers, this is actually, you're right, a good thing. Let's go skiing. Let's just get off the air right now. (laughs) If you're already up there, if you're already up at Whistler, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a great day if you've already made your way north on the Sea to Sky Highway. Okay, Elizabeth, let's talk 
talk about the GTA. I, I know I'm always saying this, it's not a Toronto show, but something really wacky happened in Toronto yesterday. At about 1 p.m., it was 14 degrees. By 7 p.m. with wind chill, it <laughs> felt like minus 14. A 28-degree swing in six hours. I, I walked in yesterday wearing a T-shirt. I walked home wearing so many layers. I feel terribly. I told a friend at about 1230, I'm like, you have to go outside. It's gorgeous. I'm on my balcony. Ah. She didn't get my text till 330. And ah, she no. went outside and she's ah. like, what are you talking about? Why would you do that to me? And I'm like, I'm so sorry. I met, sent this at 1230. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. And, that, that, and that system is cascading-ish down the 401. It never quite got as warm in places, say like uh, Kingston or Montreal, but they definitely are going through that swing in real time as it works its way east. So uh, everybody's having a little bit of a wacky weather day over here and that's okay. <laughs> and that's okay. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you for this. Talk to you in the second hour You're of the welcome. show. You bet, Dave. That's Elizabeth Moeller at the AMI Weather Desk. Coming up after the break, take a big breath together. It's been a pretty serious first 40 minutes of the show. So what's the benefit of a bit of indulgence? Jenny Bovard discusses the importance of indulging in a guilty pleasure now and again, something that I find deeply relatable. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. All right. It's almost March 1st. Leap day gets in the way a little bit sometimes. I'm checking in on you. How are those New Year's resolutions going? You've had a couple of months. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Fact. You should embrace the guilt. At least a little. Jenny Bovard is thinking about guilty pleasures. Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. Jenny, what got guilty pleasures on your radar? Well, as you hinted at, I really think that this is the time of year when many of us are checking in on our goals and resolutions that we've set for 2024. And in my case, I have cleverly dubbed this year 2020 more. I want to do a little less work. I want to work a little less and I want to get out of my neighborhood and do some exploring a lot more. But so far this year, illness, some badly timed weather events, including today where my power is out this morning <laughs> and lack of motivation. Sometimes we have a lack of funds these days. All of these excuses, contributing factors have me still very much living vicariously through a lot of my guilty pleasures, mm, I would call them. Mm. The immersive podcasts, the frivolous TV shows, and I'm still doing that more than I had hoped to be doing this time of year heading into the month of March. But there is also a little bit of shame, a little guilt associated with that. So naturally, 
Dave, I wanted to go and do some research about guilty pleasures. And I turned to the library of Google and <laughs> a really interesting, so many definitions of guilty pleasures were found. But one nice introductory one I thought was something such as a movie or a piece of music that one enjoys despite feeling that it's not generally held in a high regard. And one other interesting thing in the 1990s, that's when we think this term really picked up steam, the term guilty pleasure. How toxic were we in the 1990s? Oh my gosh, so toxic. <laughs> Some people think the term guilty pleasure should actually be retired altogether. But oh. let's get into more oh. of that. Oh, oh mm. uh, yeah, Jenny, I, I know what you mean about maybe uh, some goals for the year being a smidge derailed. Y'all have had a brutal winter in Halifax. I've just had, like, my life collapse around me, so it's thrown me off a little bit. Uh, that said, I've still had a couple of my things. I'm lifting I'm lifting weights at a pretty good clip here to start the year. I'm definitely getting my fruits and veggies in like I wanted to. My weekly trip to the sauna, however, has uh, somewhat fallen uh, off the radar here. Uh, I've also been indulging in some guilty pleasures, mostly cheese. Uh, Jenny, what's the benefit of a bit of indulgence? Well, the good news, Dave, is there's no real harm in most of our guilty pleasures, including the sauna. That sounds very healthy to me. Mm, Not mm. a guilty thing at oh, all. Oh, no, no, that's... no. I didn't mean to frame that as a guilty. I'm just guilty that I haven't been doing it enough. Oh, that's a resolution. Yes, uh -huh, of course. Uh -huh. Well, some research participants have reported that they feel wary of what others might think of them for, for example, watching a TV show, like I mentioned earlier. And a really interesting quote they gave was, because there is, objectively speaking, nothing good about it. It's not held in high regard. But I'm still going to be watching the 90s X-Men cartoon series in my retirement, because guess what? Many psychologists believe that the guilt we feel associated with a guilty pleasure, it's just a way that we respond to the pressure of following what we perceive to be social norms. And you start thinking, what about my reputation? What are people going to think right, if I'm right. watching XYZ, spending my time doing something that's not so intellectually stimulating? And it's totally normal to feel, you know, a sense of you should be doing something more productive than maybe enjoying a video game, for example. <laughs> but Dave, what is the harm? If your Saturday afternoon is free, what is the harm in taking some time to enjoy that for an hour or so? But the main takeaway for me when I did my research was that a lot of guilty pleasures, psychologists say, actually help our brains to rest. Relative to the rest of our busy days, our productivity and our brains in general can really benefit from the relaxation that comes with kicking back mm -hmm. with that romance novel or that sitcom that I've seen in its entirety five times already. <laughs> I find that one. I find that one relatable a little bit too, Jenny. Uh, how many times have I seen the movie Casino? About 40? <laughs> and I don't know why I keep watching it, but I love it because it's a guilty pleasure. And it's also an excellent example of incredible cinema. Uh, Jenny, now, now there has to be a bit of a flip side here though, right? Um, I think about one of the things that I do enjoy doing, which is a little bit of gambling here and there. I like a little trip to the casino once every uh, few months or so, or maybe a spin of the roulette wheel when I'm uh, buying a lottery ticket here and there. But when does a guilty pleasure go a bit too far? 
what we understand to be those norms that I mentioned, right? The reason why we sort of feel that guilt or shame, what we understand to be acceptable and to be societal norms, they could actually be misunderstandings. We could be hiding things or lying to people in our lives for no good reason. There's this thing called pluralistic ignorance. And pluralistic ignorance refers to when someone endorses a norm in public or a belief in public, but they hold a completely different perception or belief privately. Mm. And they do that for the sake of appealing to those norms. But those norms, that judgment, that shame, it's actually an illusion. I don't think anyone's really going to think less of me because I enthusiastically enthusiastically enjoy the great British baking show, right? So not being true to who you are, lying, sneaking around, those are obvious red flags to look out for. Um, After having read about it, I think it's more obvious for me. But if a guilty pleasure becomes something that's more of a problematic habit, if it's affecting our day-to-day lives, our responsibilities, maybe the people around us, you know, if those things are being affected, because of our guilty pleasure, uh, it could be more than a harmless guilty pleasure, right? And I think talking to someone about it could help you regain control there. Jenny, let's do one of my favorite things, which is power rankings. I want the your best for last. the best for last. I want your top three guilty pleasures. I've got my top three guilty pleasures. Let's go one at a time each. So number three on your board, Jenny. Baked goods, Dave, particularly a nice cold glass of oat milk and any kind of oversized cookie. Oh, heck yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm there with you because my list also involves junk food, but I think where I'd land is the big old bacon cheeseburger. Just let me mow down on the trashiest fast food bacon cheeseburger that you can throw at me. Extra pickles, please. Jenny, number two. If you don't want any of those pickles, I'll take them, by the way. Uh, Number two, for me, I think this is going to maybe shock some people in my life if they're listening, Um, reality TV. I really enjoy competition survivalist type shows like Alone, Outlast, the classic Naked and Afraid. But here's my guiltiest. The guiltiest is Vanderpump Rules. I'm all wrapped up in this drama. I'm so here for it. And I have to I have to give a little of an explanation. I thought it was going to be more about like the behind the scenes of the restaurant industry. And boy was I wrong. But I again I'm here for it now. Yeah, that that show was became a cultural phenomenon last year. In fact, I haven't pressed play because I'm afraid I'm going to fall right into the trap. Uh, Jenny. I pay for a subscription to watch the most recent episodes. It's maybe this one's a bit of a problem for me but what's your number two (laughs) number two for me anybody who knows me well knows this naps i love taking a nap it takes a lot of my energy not to indulge in it every single day because it throws off my sleep schedule because ultimately i am an adult toddler but i love (laughs) me a nap jenny on the weekends i can go out for two three hours on a saturday afternoon and just feel delightful about it 
I have to say I envy anyone who can take a solid nap. It's not part of my, it doesn't work with my body chemistry for some reason. I can't nap, but I'm so glad that you're able to enjoy your Saturday <laughs> afternoon naps. Oh, oh yeah. It's, it's got to be a day where it won't throw off my sleep schedule though. Cause the alarm goes off every day between five and five 30. And if I'm going to the gym before that, the alarm's going off at four o'clock in the morning. So it's best that I don't throw myself off too much uh, during the week or else the whole operation falls apart. Jenny, number one guilty pleasure. I think people in my life should stop listening or watching right now because <laughs> number one is I've never confessed this to anyone. I saved it for here today. Secret days off. Oh. So every now and then, Dave, I will book a random weekday off of all of my work commitments and I won't tell anyone else in my life. I'll, no one's trying to reach me. No one's trying to schedule anything with me. I'll go for a long run. Maybe I'll take myself out to lunch and have a nice cinnamon roll. And then I'll do some people listening, which is really just like people watching, but eavesdropping. And I just have a day to myself and no one is the wiser. Oh, I like that a lot. There's really something about a sneaky Tuesday or Wednesday off. It, it just elevates the whole week. It really is just so refreshing to just have a Jenny day, I would call it, yeah. right? And just yeah. do whatever I feel like doing. It's one of the reasons why I typically like traveling alone, Jenny, because I like being able to make plans on my own accord. Absolutely. That is maybe one of the, like, it's just one of the most refreshing things that, that I can do. And for you, take a nap when you feel like it, take a trip and do whatever it is you want to do on your own time. Jenny, you alluded to my number one earlier in this conversation. Then again, this might drift a little bit into the guilty pleasure going too far, but number one for me is binging video games for an entire day. Even as a 40-year-old man, you can still put me in front of my Xbox or my Xbox 360, and I will dive into the franchise mode of my college football team or my NHL hockey dynasty team, and I will just go wild, Jenny, where it's just a couple iced teas, maybe a little bit of candy, sitting on my fitness ball or my, or my yoga ball or my chair, and just let letting it fly for six or seven hours. I feel horrible afterwards, but in the moment, oh boy, so much stimulation. Well, good for you, Dave. Again, everything in moderation, right? It's not every day that we do take advantage of these little guilty pleasures, but it's, it's just, you just, you need it sometimes. And it's oh. that escape. It's allowing your brain to rest and, you know, maybe doing a little damage to the body sitting for that long. But again, <laughs> I envy you. My attention span is just not there. Um, it's just not there. Maybe a little Tetris for oh, yeah. 15, 20 minutes and I'm good. But we're, that's the beauty of, of, of this thing. There's these cultural norms that we're trying to appease. They're not really a thing. They're, you're not really hurting anybody. I like this. All right. A full-blown attack on hustle culture this morning. That's well done. Jenny Bovard, <laughs> you have yourself a lovely weekend. Thanks. You too. That's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. In one minute, Laura Bain has the entertainment report. But first, Apple is scrapping its plans to build a car. Mike Tabuski has more in Tech Trends. From ABC News, Tech Trends, the Apple
Apple car is dead. They've been pouring billions of dollars into this project for the past 10 years with nothing to show for it. 9 to 5 Max Chance Miller says Apple had been developing an electric car in one form or another since 2014. And over the intervening, what, 10 years, it's ebbed and flowed a lot. There have been rumors that its timeline's been moved up, moved back. The scale of the project has been increased and decreased. And it's just kind of been a mess of a project by all indications. The initial goal was for a fully autonomous vehicle with no pedals or steering wheel. But Miller says those ambitions shrunk as Apple contended with the complexities of self-driving technology and car production in general. You have to factor in, okay, where are you going to sell the car? How are people going to charge the car? How are you going to service the car? You can't take an Apple car to an Apple store in a mall. Some of the 2,000 employees who worked on the project will move to Apple's artificial intelligence team. Others will reportedly be laid off. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. It took all my power as a broadcaster, not to say that Apple is scrappling its plans for a car. Let's turn to the world of entertainment with Laura Bain. Laura, starting with some Juno news. There's some details emerging about what this year's ceremony and performance and broadcast are going to look like. Yeah, that's right. So hot off the presses this morning, it's been announced that Ace Abbey and Allison Russell will be part of a joint performance in tribute to Gordon Lightfoot and Robbie Robertson. Uh, there's also going to be a tribute to Carl Tremblay, the late singer of Quebec folk band Les Cowboys Frigants. I hope mm. I'm saying that right, by pianist Alexandra Strelinsky. And lastly, there will be a joint performance by Jeremy Dutcher and Alyssa P. happening at this year's Juno. So a lot to look forward to on March 24th. I love the idea that the Junos are not just a recap of a year of contemporary music in Canada, but an mm-hmm. appreciation of the overall Canadian music scene. You and I have talked about award shows a little bit and where they can find those appealing points to make me tune into a broadcast. And stuff like that that has an honest reflection on the landscape and legends that have built the empire that is Canadian music, that, that's the kind of stuff that's always going to get me excited. Oh, for sure. And it's also kind of a way of bridging artists from past generations to current artists, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Okay, uh, Laura, speaking of artists of the past, a little news here about Cindy Lauper. Yeah, so she has uh, just signed an agreement, which will see her giving rights to a majority of her music to Pop House Entertainment Group, which was co-founded by ABBA singer Bjorn Ulvaeus. I have to say, this is the entertainment report this morning with the most like pr- pronouncers <laughs> I've ever looked up. <laughs> Put, putting your broadcaster bona fides to the test. Exactly. Uh, ABBA singer Bjorn Olvius. And uh, so this was the company behind the ABBA Voyage concerts, uh, which featured virtual avatars or avatars, as they have (laughs) been dubbed, of the kind of group members looking as they did in 1979, but using recently recorded vocals and motion capture technology to record movements that they they did at a recent time but you know looking like they did 40 years ago um, and also a live on stage band but Cindy Lauper has something a little bit different in mind we don't have a lot of details yet but she said she would like to create an immersive theater piece that transports audiences to the New York she grew up in and that it will be about where she came from and the women who were influenced uh, influential on her life so dave we're going to go back to 1983 here for a minute get out your hairbrush to use as a microphone we have a clip to play of girls just want to have fun
Laura, I did not have a hairbrush, so I used my water bottle. <laughs> That's going to be in your head for the rest of the, <laughs> rest of the day. It really um, will. <laughs> so watching that video this morning, you know, I could kind of imagine what she might have in mind for this uh, performance because uh, the video is so 1980s New York. And uh, fun fact, it actually features her real mother playing herself, who is one of the women she said oh, inspired cool. her most. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I would definitely go see this if it was playing in a city where I was visiting or, you know, <laughs> it's not going to come to Halifax, but if it came to Halifax, um, my hope is that it would be based in New York, and I think it would be a really fun thing to do as a tourist if you were visiting there. But what about yourself? Do you have any level of interest in seeing, like, quote-unquote live performances that are featuring avatars of performers? So I think on the avatar front as a live performance, I'm I'm not particularly interested. Listen, I thought the Tupac hologram a couple of years ago at, uh, at uh, it wasn't Bonnaroo, it was one of the major music festivals, was was cool and neat. And I know I know the Wu-Tang Clan incorporated it a little bit too with a few of their shows. I, you know, I, 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 I see the appeal, but maybe it's not for me. But I love the idea of artists creating immersive installations that mm -hmm. feature music and art and memories and spoken word. Uh, Pink Floyd took one across Canada last year that mm -hmm. apparently was marvelous. It was a total multi-sensory experience, sound and touch and smell. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you could possibly be smelling related to Pink Floyd. I couldn't, <laughs> well. th I couldn't think of a single thing, but maybe that's outside the venue. But I, I, something like that is where I really think the utilization of the access to an artist's music would really find, where I would really find it appealing. In fact, one of my biggest regrets is that I just kept missing that Pink Floyd exhibit. I was in Ottawa when it was in Toronto. I was in Toronto when it was in Montreal. I just kept missing it, and I'd ac I actually wish I'd, I'd been more deliberate to go check it out. Well, I suspect it would smell a lot like the time I went to go see Dark Side of the Moon here at the Oxford Theatre as a midnight movie. Um, very smoky in the air. But, uh, you know, I, I'm with you on that. I have no interest in seeing something like ABBA Voyage. But if it was an immersive theatre experience, like something different, it sounds like what she's trying to create, I would be interested in seeing that. Now, you know, whether I would pay the kind of money I would to see a live show is an interesting question because obviously ooh. there's a lot that goes into creating something like this. So I want to like recognize that aspect of it. But also there is something where you're like, maybe I'm going to pay a little bit less since I'm not actually seeing the performer. Oh, yeah. Price point would matter for sure. If you told me it was something like $20, maybe I'm going to be a little bit more appealing. But don't be charging me these $160, $250 concert prices for something like this. Hey, Laura. As always, I've kept you over time. You're so generous with your time. Have a lovely day. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, the province of Alberta has unveiled some of their new plans when it comes to renewable energy projects. I've got that story for you in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, February 29th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Microsoft is making waves at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, Spain. They uh, dropped a little bit of news about artificial intelligence. Marco Flalo will take a closer look. And All of Us Strangers is new on Disney Plus. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely reviews the film. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in the prairies, the Alberta government has laid out new rules for future wind and solar development in the province. Premier Danielle Smith says the new rules include a ban on new wind projects located within 35 kilometer buffer zones around protected areas and other, quote, pristine viewscapes designated by the province. Albertans have been vocal that they don't want large-scale developments to interfere with our province's most beautiful natural features. You cannot build wind turbines the size of the Calgary Tower in front of a UNESCO World Heritage Site or on Nose Hill or in your neighbor's backyard. But open pit mining is fine wherever you want to do it. The province also announced the Alberta Utilities Commission will follow an agriculture-first approach when evaluating proposed renewable development on agricultural lands. Over to Ontario. Toronto's public libraries are putting the pieces back together after a cyber attack in the fall. Online systems were down until a few weeks ago. North York Central Branch Area Branch Area Manager Kim Huntley says it's been a lot of work for staff restocking shelves. So far, we've checked in over a million items and um, across the entire system and getting that material back on the shelves. The shelves were looking pretty thin. Huntley says library usage remained high through the online outage. Don't forget, that's the topic of the Daily Poll today at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. If an organization goes through a cyber attack, how much does that influence whether or not you'll use their services in the future? And finally, in the Atlantic, lots of New Brunswickers are being left out of a one-time $300 provincial payment. Nicole Reese has the story. Higgs told reporters earlier this week that his $75 million program to help make life more affordable should be seen as a, quote, good news story. Instead, he says he's disappointed his government is being criticized for not including everyone, including seniors, in the latest cost-of-living measure. To qualify for the $300, a New Brunswicker had to have been working and have had a net family income of $70,000 or less in 2022 or 23. Green leader David Kuhn says one of the main criticisms of the program is that it leaves out a number of people who fall through the cracks because they are either seniors, can't work, or have a family income of more than $70,000. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Nicole. That's your look at the regional news. Let's talk about sports with Brock Richardson. Brock, let's start with the Professional Women's Hockey League. The PWHL unveiled its playoff and draft format yesterday. Four of the six teams will make the playoffs. The playoff series will be best of five. Here's the cool wrinkle. The number one seed will get to choose whether it plays the number three or number four seed. On the draft side, they're 
doing, uh, they are not doing a traditional lottery or standings approach. Once a team is officially eliminated from the playoff race, any points they pick up improves their draft position. Of course, this will only apply to the uh, two teams that miss the playoffs, so the drama, not exactly tremendous. Brock, starting with the uh, playoff side of this, your reaction? I don't mind it. I sure I can accept the uh, choice that will exist with the top team. I can't really see a scenario where the top team wouldn't pick the uh, fourth place team unless you know you had a better season series against the third place team. That's the only kind of what about injuries? What about injuries? Right? Like, what if the number three seed is riddled with injuries going into the series? That's true. Yeah, I didn't really think about that. So there are options. I would I would lean towards more often thinking they would pick the fourth team, but uh, it depends on the scenario. So I do like the choice and understand it. As for the draft scenario... Wait, wait, wait. Give me a second. I, Give me a second. Let me in on the playoffs here. Yeah, no I, problem. I, I think number one, going for a best of five series is really smart. I think that's a little more efficient and it ramps up the drama a little bit while the league is still building. And I love the idea that the number one seed, by being the number one seed, by being the best team in the league from point A to point Z in the season, gives you the opportunity to have an advantage. Yes, there are people who would say, oh, it's bulletin board material. You're just going to inspire the team that you pick because you think they're a bunch of losers. But hey, mm-hmm. this is professional sports, gang. Like, that's what this is. And if you think you've got a competitive advantage, you put your cards on the table, darn it. Yeah, and I mean, if you're, if that is what the way you're going to view it and you're going to say, you know, bulletin board material, well, you're going to have the same opportunity next year. If you want the choice, then be better and be the top team. Yeah, and I, earn something. And I do, there should and be I a reward. See, there should be a reward for being the best team in the league. Yeah, and I do see that potential as you should have some choice, and obviously you're going to have a home ice advantage, which is uh, a positive. But, yeah, I, I do like the little wrinkle with the the uh, the making the choice. I think that just adds a little bit of a – a little bit of drama and, and questions going yeah. into the playoffs. So. Okay, the draft side, Brock. I, I have to confess, I love the idea, but I think it's a little pointless when there's only two teams competing for a number one pick. Yeah, but I, I would also place the argument of hopefully this, this league grows and you know then you're going to have more competitive scenarios. Yes, sure, it looks a little bit... Um, it looks a little bit weird right now with it only being two teams, but I'm looking beyond and thinking there's going to be some growth in this league. And so there should be some competitiveness going into when you're mathematically eliminated. I've never been a proponent of tanking and getting, you know, that, that better odds for the draft lottery and other leagues. I like the fact that if you are mathematically eliminated, give me some reason why give me give the team a reason to be competitive there's not nothing worse than literally watching a team and you know oh this team's totally tanking give them a reason to come forward and say we're gonna be competitive because we want the number one draft pick but we're gonna we want it based on wins not based on the number of losses we get so i love Love this. Yeah, that's that's why I say I love the idea. I just think in a in a two team scenario, it's not particularly interesting. But you're right. If the team grows, if the league grows to twelve teams or sixteen teams or down the road twenty teams, now things are getting interesting. When there might be ten or twelve teams trying to figure out who gets the number one pick, and considering 
all the pearl clutching that goes on in the National Hockey League and the National Basketball Association around teams deliberately losing games or constructing themselves in a way to lose games to get better draft position, the NBA and the NHL and even to a degree the NFL should be taking a close look at this model and pay very close attention to the to the results that it yields because this could be the answer to their tanking problem. I think it once again shows where the PWHL is a very forward-looking league. They're trying to create a new modern standard in sports and that is super cool. And and I and again I think they're looking at this as a forward thinking, you know, with the draft situation. They're looking at this as more of a forward thinking. Yes, as we've mentioned, it's only two teams right now, but they're looking beyond the two teams. They're looking, you know, having uh more teams involved. And I think that's what the, the professional women's hockey league is looking at right now. And I'd like to see some of the other leagues also take a look at how the number one teams in each of the conferences can get more of an advantage and more of a choice as to who they pick. And again, as you said, it's the Professional Women's Hockey League leading by example, and other leagues could take a page out of their book. Yeah, and offering a template and some sample size and some data to see what it looks like, which is super cool. Okay, Brock, over to the NHL. Got to be a little quick on this one in the National Hockey League. The Calgary Flames have sold off another asset before the trade deadline. The Flames sent defenseman Chris Tanev to the Dallas Stars. There are a few moving pieces to this deal, but for the sake of simplicity, the Flames receive a second-round pick, a conditional third-round pick, and defensive prospect Artem Grushnikov. The Flames get that conditional third-round pick if the Stars make the Stanley Cup final. Brock, your reaction to this trade that broke late last night? This is clear now to me that the Calgary Flames are doing exactly what we had talked about. They are building assets moving forward. I think this is the beginning of them waving the flag and saying we're going to you know, build some capital, and this is another one of those moves that benefit both sides. Uh, Chris uh, Tanev is a wonderful player and will be an asset to the Dallas Stars, who seem to be second in their in their division. And they're they tied with Winnipeg. Like- they're tied with Winnipeg for the division lead. They've played more games, but they're tied with Winnipeg for the division lead. Yeah. Yeah. So this is an addition that will help them, and I think it also is a win for Calgary if you're building you know, draft capital and getting some pieces. I think it's a a win-win, but this is clear to me now. Calgary's moving towards the sell, 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 sell. One week to the deadline, one big more piece to move. It's the number one player on the trade boards. It's defenseman Noah Hannafin. He probably gets you a first-round pick, plus, plus, plus. A lot of hockey analysts have said the return on this trade is a little underwhelming. I disagree a smidge. I think a second-round draft pick is always useful, and even if it's a lower-level prospect to bring into your system, it still indicates the notion of building assets, so I I don't hate the return. Brock, in the last nine months, the Flames have traded away four core players. Tyler Toffoli, the right-winger who got sent down to New Jersey, defenseman Nikita Zadorov, who went to Vancouver, center Elias Lindholm, who went to Vancouver, and now Tanev, and again, Noah Hannafin out the door as well. Who knows about their star goaltender, Jacob Markstrom? There's been a lot of smoke around him about whether or not he might get moved. In general, the Flames are clearly about to embark in the rebuild. The one hiccup here, Brock, is they don't necessarily control their first-round draft pick next year. In theory, 
unless a number of conditions occur, that pick goes to the Montreal Canadiens as part of the Sean Monaghan trade a few years ago. So that's the one wrinkle for Calgary. There are about a bazillion conditions on that first-round pick, but they don't necessarily control their first-round pick next year. So that's the one scary thing if you're a Flames fan, that you might finish towards the bottom of the standings next year and not actually reap the reward. And that's something, too, that I think a lot of teams get caught up into when there are these sort of conditions attached. You think of it as, oh, that's the future and we'll deal with it when we need to. But then that future comes and creeps in and then you think, oh, we're going to get a number one draft pick. And then it's like, oh, wait, are we? And I think that's sometimes the situation that professional teams deal with. But it's, again, one of those scenarios where it's the deal with the now versus the future when when they make these sort of deals. But eventually you got to pay the piper and deal with the quote-unquote consequences of your previous deals that may come back to bite you. I mean, it might have been the previous general manager who might be the general manager of your team who uh, made that trade uh, a couple years ago, just FYI. Uh, yeah, no, it's uh, the Flames. The Flames is a messy situation, mm-hmm. but they're definitely making the right choices here today. Sometimes you got to bite the bullet and do the rebuild. Hey, Brock, thank you for this. Have a nice day. You as well. That's Brock Richardson. He's at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up after the break, Microsoft made some waves at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, Spain. It was all about AI. Mark Aflalo will tell you about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Mobile World Congress is underway in Barcelona, Spain, and Microsoft is making some waves with an announcement of its AI, artificial intelligence, access principles. Mark Aflalo of Access Tech Live can unpack the announcement. Hey, good morning, Mark. Morning, Dave. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Nice to chat with you today. Mark, what are the big takeaways? What's the big picture out of Microsoft's announcements? Well, you know, the company realizes that they have a fairly large head start when it comes to AI being a major stakeholder in open AI. So they're pretty pretty ahead of the game. But they also uh, have, you know, seen their past records of monopolies and issues and, you know, different government bodies complaining. So they're putting out this list of principles that basically allow people to very publicly see the guidelines in which they are going to be developing AI. Things like not using public information things like using only their own servers and their own software infrastructure. Small things that, that have a minor effect on consumers, but a larger effect on the governing bodies that are looking for to companies to establish responsible uses and development of AI principles. Right. This is about establishing your own internal guardrails and maybe trying to avoid over over government regulation. So how does this maybe fit into the broader conversation that was had last year at International Conference in London, England, where tech companies and politicians didn't necessarily spar over AI, but were trying to come to some sort of understanding? 
Well, you know, I think a lot stemmed out of that and also just the introduction of these large language models being available to consumers. So we're definitely seeing that people did take a little bit of a step back and say, okay, how are we developing this? What tools are we putting out there? What pace are we putting these tools out there? You have companies like OpenAI that really don't seem to be holding back, whereas you have companies like Apple that really haven't done anything, at least publicly, about how they're using these large language models. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of the big name companies at least step forward and talk about how they're going to be doing things on a more public forum and really disclosing a lot of the information as to what data they're going to be using to train these models. So a lot of it does stem from that meeting about a year ago, but it, it, it is a really, as you said, kind of making sure that everybody is very clear on how they plan on moving forward with the development, what processes they're going to put into place, and hopefully avoid some government oversight. Mark, I was playing around with some AI on the weekend, doing some logo design, just, just seeing what was capable. Yep. I don't know if it's that the AI is not smart enough or I'm just really bad at typing in prompts. You know, there is a creativity and there is an art to talking to AI and giving it prompts that really are um, accurate enough to give you the result you want. I find that if you speak natural language and you just kind of define its role, you know, you are a, a graphic designer with 50 years experience designing logos for major brands and include some of those brands and, and reference some designs oh, and some oh. art. Yeah, no, you can go deep. You can go really, really deep and give it a role. Like give it a, kind of create its personality and then say, using all this knowledge, now generate some designs that influence blah, 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 blah. And it tends to, you tend to refine the process. And as you add more details to that prompt and you give it more job descriptions or or more history or more criteria there, um, it does pump out some pretty accurate stuff. Although, you know, it does have its moments where it, <laughs> it does go kind of crazy, like when you're trying to, you know, delete a flower pot out of a picture and, and it moves it really well, but then doesn't fill in the space with, well, what the table it was on type thing. So what you're saying is I need to more gently empower the robot. I like that. It's like when yeah, I, it's just, like when... Yeah, just, uh, gent gentle, correct, give it, you know, stroke its ego. <laughs> Stroke it's, Tico, it's like it's, it's like what I, it's like when I say thank you to the self checkout machine. Okay, Mark, let's exactly. uh, let's go pivot off of Microsoft and move over to Google because they yeah. uh, unveiled a whole slate of upgrades to various products on the hardware and the software front, beginning with an accessibility upgrade in their Lookout app. What did they put on offer here? Okay, so a couple of things actually in accessibility um, in the Lookout app specifically, and also really in Google Maps, which take his, takes advantage of Lens, which allows you to kind of hold your phone up and point it at things. Well, it's now uh, has more support for landmarks and things of note. So if you're if you're trying to navigate an area and you're holding your phone up like I'm holding my phone up on the screen now, kind of looking in different directions, it will pinpoint and actually use TalkBack to announce things that it sees oh, to make it a little bit easier for you to you know understand what you might be looking at. Some other accessibility updates really come, again, thanks to AI on images and things that don't have alt text. So it'll actually automatically generate AI descriptions for photos and online images that don't already have alt text, which is pretty cool. So uh, aside from that and the lens, um, the other thing is TalkBack. Yeah, TalkBack will just you know talk about those landmarks as you're pointing things at them. So th that's on the accessibility side. I like that. That's, I, I, that's a neat one. Uh, Mark, you mentioned some AI features that are going to be used in terms of generating description What's the latest on Google's AI Gemini system? I know it hit a couple roadblocks here in the last month or so. 
yeah, it's, it's, listen, they're always going to hit roadblocks. People are always going to find ways to kind of push it to its limits and and take up advantage of those opportunities to kind of exploit it or get kind of publicity for it. But so Gemini is replacing, slowly replacing Google's assistant, at least in terms of the back end and being able to uh, be more accurately respond and do things for you. So right in apps, for example, the big one is in Google Messages. Instead of having to go to another app and type in a prompt to get a response and cut and paste it, you can actually call on Gemini in Google Messages. And this is something we're going to see pop out throughout the entire Android operating system where it'll just be there when you need it. You know, they talked about photo you know, photo uh, editing and AI photo generation, you know, just a couple of weeks ago when Samsung unveiled the, the S24 and the S24 Ultra. Those are small things that are making its way into existing apps that are going to make those experiences a lot better. And the other one is actually kind of cool. It's an Android Auto uh, trying to make driving a little bit safer. They're going to summarize long texts and try to pinpoint details in group texts, for example, what you're dealing with off the air, um, <laughs> to give you just the relevant information. So if you are driving and you're behind the wheel, you don't have to glance at your phone. It'll give you that relevant information. Pretty cool stuff. Pulling back the curtain on me a little bit there, Mark. Uh, it's all it's all good. I'm trying to get some wedding planning figured out it's in the fall for a friend's wedding, and it's not going as smoothly as as I thought it might. Procrastination and ambition uh, failed to align in my life. Mark, one more piece of news here uh, for Google users who use Spotify. What's yeah. the what's the intersection here? Uh, this interesting one. They're actually just adding new casting controls. So right now it was Ooh. pretty confusing to figure out how to oh, switch God. between Ugh. headphones and Ugh. smart speakers Ugh. and where you're playing your audio. They're making it really simple. You just literally hit a casting button and let you choose exactly where you want to put it. So a little minor, minor a little fine-tuning under the hood, which is kind of fun. Uh, the amount of fights that I've had with the cast button on my Spotify to some, oh, of, the, some, some of the speakers uh-huh. around my house. Oh, my gosh. Uh, words that I'm not allowed to use on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV. Maybe <laughs> maybe on the AMI-audio podcast network, but not on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV. Mark, uh, <laughs> you're fresh back from a, a trip to Vienna. What do, yeah. you got, what do you guys have lined up for Access Tech Live today at noon Eastern time? It, it's a pretty packed show today. We're going to talk about these Google and we're going to talk about Apple ditching the Apple Car project. Uh, we've got Georgia Knox from Audible who's joining us to talk about accessibility at Audible. Uh, we're going to be talking to a stand-up comedian that's using voice-to-text in uh, one of AMI-TV's mm-hmm. hot specials, mm-hmm. all-access comedy, Aaron Belial. And I'm going to be going hands-on with this mighty Galaxy S24 Ultra that I'm holding up here in my hand. But that's that's all you're going to see about it until noon. Mark, you're making me jealous. After the segment you did about the <laughs> S24 a few weeks ago, you perked the interest of a lot of people around this place. And uh, I would say about 10 days ago, I was right on the verge of upgrading my phone to the S24. There's a million things happening in my life, but I was right on the verge of upgrading to the S24, but then just decided to buy uh, the absolute basic Samsung model as a secondary phone, the A15 5G. I I still somewhat regret my decision, but it was a little bit easier on the pocketbook. (laughs) You know, there's a return policy, and uh, you can (laughs) finance the S24 Ultra. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, you're the best, man. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. (laughs) That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the hosts of Access Tech Live. You can find that show noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. Coming up after the break, new on Disney Plus is a movie called All of Us Strangers. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has a review. But first, here is the Parasport update with Greg Westlake. Hello and welcome back to the Parasport Update, produced in collaboration with the Canadian Paralympic Committee. I'm Greg Westlake. 
Canada's men's wheelchair basketball team look to keep their winning ways at the 2024 Rocky Mountain Cup in Colorado Springs. After opening the tournament with two big wins over the United States split squads, Canada faced Italy in their third match in the round robin tournament. The Italians defeated Canada 65 to 57 before the Canadians took it to the US 68 to 50 to finish the tournament with three wins and one loss. Departing the continental divide, we descend on the eastern seaboard as Canada's men's sitting volleyball team was in Boston for a series of exhibition matches against the States. With only one qualification spot available for Paris, the friendlies served as preparation for the 2024 World Paravolleyball Paralympic qualifiers in just over a month's time in Dali, China. Over the three days, the Americans edged Canada in their set of matches. Switching from the courts to the ice, get ready for a jam-packed week of curling action as Canada's men's wheelchair curling team begins the SD Biosensor World Wheelchair Curling Championships from March 2nd to the 9th. We'll have full results from Canada's first few matches of the bond spiel on the next edition of the show. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. All of Us Strangers is a new film out on Disney+. Plus. It's a British film. It's the second adaptation of the 1987 novel Strangers. It was nominated for six BAFTA awards. Here's a clip from the film's trailer. A man reclines in evening twilight. Searchlight pictures. He answers his door. Hello. Hi. Saw you looking at me from the street. He stares up at a tower at night. The men ride an elevator. I'm assuming you're not with anyone. Never see you with anyone. The men share a smile, caresses, and undress each other. This is mom and dad. A family picture shows him as a boy. Yeah. They died just before I was 12. I'm trying to write about them at the moment. On a street, he compares a sketch to his childhood home. How's it going? Strangely. Hi. At night, he greets his mother. Hi. A film by Andrew Haig. Is this real? He stands in his old room. Does it feel real? He flips through a notebook, then dines with his parents. Our boys back home? Our son. They toast. Look at you. You were just a boy. And now you're not. He looks out his old window. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely is here to re review the film. Hey, good morning, Michael. Good morning. So, Michael, even within that trailer, there's a pretty quick pivot that got a little strange. There needs to be a little more context from here, from you. Share some insight into the plot. Yes, I can do it in clear sentences. First of all, Adam and Haley into a relationship and they're the only ones that live in that apartment building. Adam is a screenwriter and he's making a film about his parents. Somehow, Adam's parents come back from the dead, and they are found in Adam's childhood home. Yeah, okay, yeah, definitely a pivot there. I, I will give it points for creativity, but that is definitely a pivot for sure. Michael, what message did you take away from the film? I really enjoyed this film because of the parents. The parents coming back from the dead, they died in uh, 1987 in a car accident, 
and they just come back just like nothing happened back in 2023. They're still the same age as when they died. Um, so it's fascinating to see Angel's God as Adam is grown up and talking to his parents. Um, I think the message that I received from this movie is that love is love and, you know, appearance love and acceptance of their child does not change. Even if they passed away in 1987, if they came back, they would still presumably have the same love that they had. And I think it's important for us to realize that we don't have the loved ones in our lives forever. But we can imagine these kinds of scenarios that if they came back, things would be just as normal. How did the film approach how attitudes towards gay people have shifted in different time periods? So in 1987, mom didn't really know a lot about AIDS, just like most people. Um, and she asks Adam about AIDS in 2023. She says, you know, what happened to that gay disease? And Adam gives the answer and says, you know, things are better for gay people now, but we still have other challenges. Of course, like we know about trans rights in, in the world today is a big challenge. So um, Adam is able to explain these kinds of things to his mom. So it's really a fascinating, fascinating character study. In fact, that your, your parents or your loved ones would never stop caring about you. And later on, you have a chance to open up to them because you've been lonely without them. Or you've been wondering what they've been up to, and they've been wondering what you've been up to. So it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit bittersweet. And also that it tends to the relationship with Harry, because Adam's mom now approves of the relationship with Harry, and Adam's mom is, as well as Adam's dad, they're okay with the fact that Harry um, will be Adam's new life partner going forward. How did you find the dynamic between characters relatable? I just found all the dialogue to be realistic, depending on what was going on. I mean, obviously, we don't have people come back from the dead, but um, the parents were parents. They, they were still doing the same thing that they liked to do in 1987. You know, they like to go to bed together, they like to watch TV, they like to have drinks, they like to talk to their son. So it was all the same thing that was going on. Um, the chemistry between Adam and Harry was quite electric. And they were both lonely because they live in a high-rise apartment building. And it's quite uh, quite the towering experience when you, when you saw it in the trailer. I also live in a high-rise building myself. And on the 26th floor, I can feel kind of... Uh, above it all. So I related to that. And um, there was also the point of the film that's made where, you know, being gay is not the only thing that might make us different. Um, for example, we might be different because we lost our parents at a young age, or we have social anxiety, or we have all these other issues. And so being gay is not the one all and all because we still need support with all the other aspects of our personality. All of Us Strangers has been received really well by critics. It did get those six nominations at the BAFTA Awards, but did not take home any wins. Zero 
Oscar nominations. Michael, why do you think critics are liking the film, but awards committees aren't giving it the recognition? I tried to say I could give you a blunt answer and say that it's because the two main stars are Irish actors, um, and I'm half Irish, but that's just a sarcastic response. Um, I think it's really hard to put the pose on why awards, awards shows don't pick certain films. I think maybe they just didn't have the time to watch this film or the time to appreciate this film, but we do so. I watched it with a straight friend of mine just to make sure that it was relatable to all kinds of audiences, and my straight friend also enjoyed the film. So I get the impression you would recommend this one. I would recommend it with the caveat that there are some set scenes that may not be for everyone, but you can always fast forward to those. Yeah, those are the fun scenes, though. Michael, thank you for this. Have a nice day. You too, and remember to be nice to the AI overlords. They, they told me to say that. Yeah, that's uh, in reference to what Marco Flalo said last segment about me uh, trying to be a little more gentle with the AI bots trying to uh, design logos for me. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely. All of Us Strangers is available to stream on Disney+. Plus. It's also available in select theaters. It's rated R. Coming up after the break... You may not find this surprising per se, but more and more folks are using wearable technology and health trackers. So Elizabeth Moeller wants to look into the tech drawers of myself, Nazreen, and Ramya. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Access Tech Live hitting the airwaves at noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. Kelly and Ramya popping on the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show. Ramya, what's coming up on the show today? Okay, we're talking about an original copy of a Harry Potter book that just sold for an insane amount of money. Um, and we're going to talk about that on the What in the World segment with Jeff Ryman. Also, you know you're not coming home from Costco, Dave, with just that rotisserie chicken you went for. So Mary <laughs> Hamalidi is going to talk about uh, tips for trimming down your grocery bill from wholesale shopping, especially grocery shopping. Uh, plus, we have our roundtable, and today we're talking to Bean Gill from Push. We know that season uh, two is coming out very soon, and she's uh, the leader of the Wheelie Beeps. We're going to talk to her. It's going to be an unconventional roundtable for us today. As someone who does not drive and lives alone, even I can get caught in the Costco trap. I, I love me yep. a good meander through Costco. Same here, Dave. I remember Nisreen saying that Costco is a little bit of a, a day trip for her family. It's kind of like that for me as well. When I go there, I'm like, this is awesome. And then I come home with the un, uh, unbearable amount of things to lift. Why Why don't I need 500 sausage rolls, right? I'm going to eat 500 <laughs> sausage rolls. Like, there's a darn good opportunity for me here. And look, look at this price. You can't beat this price. 
Do you know how much aluminum foil I have at my house from like years ago, just from one Costco shop? <laughs> Actually, you've talked about your olive oil collection on the show before. Uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> hey, Ramya, I can tell I can tell you're in transit here on the phone, so I'm going to say goodbye to you. Have a lovely show today. You too. Thanks. That's Ramya Amuthan. You can find Kelly and Ramya 2 p.m. Eastern time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. And don't forget to download their podcast on demand on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Just punch in Kelly and Ramya. And uh, once you're done subscribing and listening to them, don't forget to find Now with Dave Brown. Rate, subscribe, review, download. Even if, you've, even if you've already watched the show that day, download anyway. Pump up the numbers for me. Give me a couple wins with my bosses here. <laughs> All right, let's turn to the world of technology yet again this hour. Elizabeth Moeller, you found some statistics in regard to how many wearable devices people are buying. Yes, it's it's true. It's interesting. Um, so since 2016, wearable devices have tripled and there are now over 1 billion in circulation. And we know that wearable devices, people use them for all kinds of things, sleep tracking, reminding me to stand up and move a little steps. And it's kind of dystopian. People are even using them to help them diagnose or, or get diagnosed for health conditions. So going to a doctor when they see something's off with their heart rate, kind of weird. So I wanted to chat a little bit today and see do you own a wearable device? Why or why not? And Nazreen, I'm going to kick it off with you. Yeah, I wear uh, an Apple Watch and uh, I mainly use it for working out. I am very poor at tracking my heart rate, that's for sure. Um, but absolutely love it. It's very convenient for me, um, especially when I go to the gym. You know, I don't have to hold my big phone on the treadmill or the elliptical and and I just have I have it on my wrist just tracking my movements and and it's awesome. Is it on your wrist right now? Nope, no it's not because I didn't charge it. Okay. That's my problem here. <laughs> Listen, I love my wearable devices, but I suck at charging it when I need it. I have to admit this. Okay, so so uh, I've got a bunch of follow-up questions. Elizabeth, I promise yeah. I'll bounce the ball back to you here eventually. Nazreen, no, you are a fashionable mm -hmm. woman. You love a little bit mm -hmm. of bling here and there. Do you just have the standard strap on your watch or you got a little bit of shiny action going on? No, I don't like the other colors, so I stick to black so it could match all my fits. <laughs> okay, that, that was question number one. You mentioned multiple wearable devices, and Elizabeth, I want to give you an opportunity on this as well, because I think defining the notion of wearable device is worthwhile here. Certainly a smartwatch, a smart ring, these are common forms and commonly understood forms of wearable device. You're finding more and more glasses that have cameras built in with speakers in the frames. I would call that a wearable device. What about earpods or AirPods? I don't know, I, I, mm. I, I, can't, I can't keep track of what's branded now or what the actual name of things are. Earbuds, Nazreen, would you consider earbuds a wearable device? I do. You know, um, I consider it because you can, there's some accessibility factors mm -hmm. or there's some features mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know, you could just tap it to pause, double tap it to fast forward or whatever it, the feature is. So I do find it, it could be a wearable device that is 
either accessible or it's just convenient for you. So I, I would consider that, yeah. Yeah, there, there are some folks in the hard of hearing community who will actually use uh, various earbud technology because it can actually double as something of, in, of a hearing aid with certain transparency sound modes and open sound modes, which is super, super cool. And Elizabeth, I bring that to the table. And again, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to sort of answer this all across the board and broadly, but I, I'm bringing earbuds and ear pods to the table as well because because certainly for a lot of folks from our community, from the blind and uh, low vision community, this is a tool that oftentimes works in conjunction quite beautifully with a smartphone that is an accessibility device. So I know it doesn't necessarily do tracking per se with something like an earbud, but I do think that perhaps there's a broadening of the conversation here that's worthwhile. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just purchased um, AirPods recently. I, I got on the AirPod bandwagon a couple of months ago, and I love the different sound modalities. You know, so whether you want to block out all your sound because you're on a noisy airplane or you want to hear what's going on around you because you're on the street, what I what I think about in terms of wearable devices is it somehow enhancing my experience or giving me information. And AirPods certainly do both of those things or earpods. I even think about those um the lifeline necklaces that people oh, wear yeah. to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah you know, with falls and, um, we, we have some family members in my family that we've got those for, and those are really great because you can, you can, you know, attract people if that's what needs to be done, but those are great, you know, and, and I do wear an Apple watch. It's, um, it's something for me, but I don't find the trackings what I use it for. It's the pay. It's the being able to pay without digging around. Where's my wallet? Where's my phone? So although I like mm -hmm. the tracking and I do use things like Strava for my, my workouts, that's not the big draw for me for a wearable device it had to be something i could pay with yeah um you know, I I only have the black band because I'm terrible at taking on and off the, the watch band but i'm with nazreen <laughs> i'm with nazreen on that one yeah it's the best I, uh, it's the best. I, I, I bought the cheapest smartwatch imaginable in December of 2022. It is currently in a box in my guest room. It will be charged and put on me at one point, but I bought it purely for Nizreen's reasoning just to maybe track my steps a little bit. And when I am working out to find out what my heart was actually doing, because as, as a man who is overweight and in his 40s, I'm trying to be a little more cognizant of my cardiovascular health, health uh, bacon cheeseburgers being aside. So yeah, everyone I, I, needs a treat. Every, everyone, everyone, everyone <laughs> needs a treat. But I think, Nizreen, a couple of these emergences of things like the smart ring, I find to be a little bit more appealing because I feel like it might be a little bit less obtrusive in my day-to-day. -day. Uh, I feel like I, I would never sleep with a watch on. I would be uncomfortable if I was sleeping with a watch on, whereas a ring I don't think would bother me as much. Yeah, but would it match your outfits? That's that's the question. Mm. I feel like a ring is more obvious. Um, <laughs> I agree with you, Dave, in terms of, you know, just if if it bothers you cuz i in the beginning when i had this uh when i had the apple watch i felt like it was very uncomfortable about, around my wrist it was thick it's it's heavier than i um used to cuz i never i never used to wa wear watches in general mm -hmm. so just having this um heavy device on my wrist was uncomfortable but i i certainly got used to it and and i felt like it was so convenient uh, it was it was just convenient for me. Um, the ring, I don't know how I would feel about it. I feel like rings are more uncomfortable than a watch. 
that's that's a personal opinion. Spoke, spoken I don't know. spoken like a newly married woman over there. Ah, this thing I'm trying to figure out the combination. <laughs> no, I love this ring. Okay. Um, but a, another uh, ring like that, I don't I don't know how I feel about it. Eliz- I, I would need to try it out. Elizabeth, would you consider taking the plunge, even though you seem to like your your uh, your Apple Watch? Like you said, you use it for the Apple Pay quite a bit. But would you, you consider know- the ring for some health tracking? I would not because I, I use my hands so much that, and I own a lot of rings already and I never wear them because I'm always washing my hands, putting hand cream on, I'm doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like the ring would get in the way. And I feel like I'd lose it. Like I, I just, I worry about, a, I'm already with those AirPods, always doing that beep, beep, beep. Where are they? I'm trying to track them. Right, I'm always right. freaking out. They're lost. So I don't, I feel like for me, because of the size, a ring wouldn't be the ticket for me. Elizabeth, how much do you trust some of the health data that comes back through these trackers? Because uh, experiences vary a little bit from product to product. Yeah, yeah. I, you know... I look at it, but I take it with a grain of salt. So like, for example, sometimes it will say you haven't been exercising today at all. And I know I've just come back from the gym. So I'm like, did I forget to turn it on? Did something not track? Was the battery not charged properly? Um, <clears throat> but other times it's it's bang on. Like I've done triathlons and it's been actually to the minute of what the official triathlon time that I'll receive oh, is. Wow. So you know, yeah, which is great, but I, I do take all of this with a grain of salt and I try not to let myself get anxious. Like if I look at my rings, I try to think, okay, maybe I should get up after the show's over, of course, and stand up and move a little, but I think it can be a little bit anxiety producing too. So I try to kind of always weigh that pressure around. Yes, this is helpful, but I don't want it to sort of dictate my, my rhythms. There's only two minutes left in the show, so you can fill those rings in soon, uh, Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, Nazreen, you mentioned that you like understanding a little bit about the context of your workout but how much do you actually trust the data coming back to you listen i am so i understand elizabeth when it comes to you finish a great workout you feel good you check the watch (laughs) and you're like this is not what i expected so i do feel anxiety when that happens and that's when that's when i don't trust it (laughs) when i feel like i passed my goals then i feel accomplished i feel motivated and I'm like, yeah, I did, I did good. So it all depends on the data on the Apple Watch. I don't, I, it's 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 nerve wracking because sometimes you, they're like, oh, okay, you don't, you didn't get up enough, you didn't do this enough. So yeah, don't tell me I what trust, to do. Don't tell me what to do. Watch. Don't tell me to get up while I'm watching TV. No. Um, <laughs> I will. I will take you off my wrist, and then you can go sit in my drawer in the dark or in the box uh, in Dave's guest room. The that didn't remain in there because he's afraid to put it on. But it does get me peeved when I don't accomplish my goals and, and it, (laughs) and it, and I thought I did really like, I had a really good workout and they're saying, Oh, I only did like, 4,000 steps, and it's just not enough. Don't lie to me, machine. (laughs) Elizabeth Nazreen, thank you for this. Thank Thank you, Dave. That's Elizabeth Moeller and Nazreen Abdel-Majid. That's all the time there is for the show today. Don't you worry. Things are kicking off again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. The news panel getting together will be a roundup of some federal politics stories out of Ottawa this week. And then I am going to force Joita and Michelle to have some fun and talk about breakfast for dinner. You don't want to miss it. That's now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I am Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.
Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.